morning. Welcome. Nice to see old friends and new faces. Today we are celebrating the uh, Buddha's birthday. This is a traditional ceremony that's done all over the world. It's done different ways in different countries. In Japan, it's called Hana Matsuri. And Hana means flower, and Matsuri means something like festival. So festival of the flowers. And pretty soon we'll have an image of the baby Buddha up here. And after this little talk, we're going to do a ceremony of bathing the baby Buddha. I'll talk more about why we would do that and what that means. I was thinking about uh, religion and religious figures and in, in our postmodern culture, how it is for us to venerate and, and celebrate a religious figure that is always part myth, part reality, filtered through cultural lenses and so forth, and how do we relate to that? And so what I decided was important was to talk about why we would celebrate um, the Buddha. So the, the first is we're celebrating somebody who gives himself completely to spiritual practice. As far as we know, the Buddha is an example of somebody with no holds barred and no reservation gave himself to awakening to purifying the heart-mind, to serving others, to seeing through illusion. And all of us who do practice know that that's pretty hard. It's really hard to do when we see how much we, we hold on to. And so the example of the Buddha is amazing. He just said there, he had a, whole, a life of comfort, a life of ease, and said that's not important. What really matters is clarifying my true nature. So probably we're doing the best we can with our circumstances. I bet that each of us is really putting as much energy into the path as is appropriate at this time and given our circumstances. But the question itself can illuminate. The question itself of what would it be if I gave myself 100% to the spiritual path? What would that be? What, what, what would change? Would my priorities shift? What would have to be given up? What would be born anew? So we are celebrating the part of ourselves in honoring the Buddha that is really intent on spiritual practice and that is really clear about its value and perhaps its priority. Another aspect is we're celebrating the purity of our original nature. So this is not a tradition of original sin, Buddhism. We don't have that concept at all. Rather, we say that when all the extra stuff that we've accumulated in a lifetime or lifetimes is cleared away, even for just an instant, we see our basic nature, which is clear, bright, and you could say sacred and always present, but just obscured. And so the old but wonderful metaphor of clouds and sky, that the sky is always there, but it's just temporarily obscured by clouds. And we do the work to let the clouds part so that that original nature can shine through. And the baby Buddha represents that, the, the innocence of that. 
We also celebrate the Buddha and honor him because his teachings were very, very clear. Very, very clear. Relatively free of dogma. Relatively free of dogma. Of course, there's cultural accretions and traditional worldviews that are in there. And we, in a way, as Americans, have to sort out as modern people, what is cultural and what is really relevant and is about the essence of things. We have to do that work, but there are volumes and volumes and volumes of very lucid Buddhist teachings. There's not one book that is considered the gospel. We don't have that way of thinking in Buddhism. He taught for 49 years, so it's interesting. At first the Buddha said, I don't want to teach. Like, nah, no thanks. After his great enlightenment, that was his first thought. Someone said, will you teach? He said, ah, probably not. I'd like to just sit here. <laughs> this is really great. But then he, uh, somebody asked him to teach, and he reconsidered, and he got up and started walking and taught the first people he encountered. And as far as we know, he did that nonstop for 49 years until his body just wore out. So he was a very clear teacher and a systematic teacher and a teacher that was not interested in metaphysics, which in India was extraordinary and even in modern times is extraordinary. So what that means by not being interested in metaphysics is at the time of the Buddha there was all these systems of thought and people were concerned with how many souls there are and does the world exist or not exist? Is the universe going to be destroyed? How many chakras do I have? What color are they? People were really wrapped up in ritual and propitiating various deities. People were very much hung up on ascetic practices that if I did the right thing, if I caused my body enough pain, I would become free. That was one whole line of thinking. And he tried that out and, and decided that that was confused. There's also whole lines of thinking that if I fully indulged in pleasure, if I lived a life that was unabashedly hedonistic, then I could become illuminated. And he tried that out and said, no, that's not, that's not going to work. So what he did is he studied the mind. He came to real clarity about the nature of the human mind. And that is more or less what he taught. He taught knowing your own mind, knowing the human mind, that if you know your own mind clearly, you will little by little become free from suffering. So not that you have to know about what comes next after this life, not that you have to know about some secret metaphysical thing located in your heart, whatever. Know your own mind. There's a famous teaching by the Buddha from the Dhammapada. Uh, I think it's the opening line. He said, all things arise from mind, are shaped by mind, and are made by mind. Sometimes it's translated, all things arise from heart, are shaped by heart, are made by heart. So the Buddha was clearly concerned with the nature of consciousness and how that interfaces with the world and how those aren't really two things. So ongoing Dharma practice, whatever tradition, is knowing the quality and the content of the heart-mind, of this heart-mind. So we look at what colors are perception. We look at what conditions 
our perception. We look at what is the mind up to. It's one of my favorite things to ask. What is the mind up to? Because as you practice mindfulness, you watch that the mind is very sneaky. You can see that it's almost always on the verge of brewing a new storyline about somebody or something. It tends to want to slide into perceptions about life that are fixed and not entirely accurate. So what is the mind up to is informed through the Buddha's teaching by various frameworks. And there are actually lots of different, different frameworks that help us look at the contents of the mind and get clear on it. One framework is to look at the mind through the lens of what are the afflictive emotions. What they're called the kleshas often. often. The, the afflictive emotions, there's five of them that are traditionally listed. They're anger, jealousy, pride. And that's interesting that pride is considered an emotion. It's got a feeling and mental component. Craving, it's a sense of just wanting something else, something different. And confusion is considered an emotion. Uh, combination of a bodily and a, and a mental state. Another framework to look at the mind is through uh, grasping and aversion. You could almost boil it down to just that. Let's say grasping, aversion, and ignorance. So grasping is the, the tendency of the mind to want to clutch on to something, to congeal around a thought or an idea or just the, the very wanting to get away from something. And the whole idea is that we suffer this. We suffer the wanting to get away from something. It's both completely natural and out of control, or, or it's, it's gotten too much power over us, the desire to escape what is unpleasant and move towards what is pleasant. So grasping is one side of that, and aversion is the other. Aversion is I don't like that, and grasping is I like that. And they're more or less the same thing, two sides of the same coin. So he, he pointed out the ways that the mind is afflicted. And the whole empowerment of that teaching is all of these things are adventitious to the nature of the mind. They're not adventitious, they are, what's the word? Sorry, I'm lacking the terminology. They are not intrinsic to the nature of our being. That the nature of our being, of our mind, if you could call it that, is that pure, clear nature. And that these things arise from causes and conditions. And because of that, we can work with them and we can let them go. So from those frameworks of what's afflictive, he taught impermanence. He said all of this is transient. None of this has any real substance, but we keep renewing it. We keep investing in it. We keep getting involved in our emotions and our stories and perpetuating them. And that's karma. That something arises and we invest it with reality and we keep putting the mental energy into it. And so the anger keeps going. The greed keeps going. The feeling of being unworthy keeps going. And part of what we're doing in sitting still in Zazen is letting things wither letting things wither in non-involvement, being aware that that's what's going on, and in a way it just unwinds through not doing much at all. 
just sitting still. So these teachings, they can be useful when we observe it in our own mind stream and digest the framework about it. Because when you need it is when you're afflicted. And if you haven't digested the framework, then we'll just go down the same patterns with the affliction. So if I, I habitually get moody, if I don't recognize that this is an impermanent phenomena arising, this is just a mood and nothing else, I get drawn right into it. And I start reinforcing perceptions in my mind, telling myself stories about my life. And before I know it, the emotion has so much energy and is so in the body-mind system, not only does it seem real, but it's really hard to relinquish. So that's the value of studying and hearing the teaching over and over is it gets in us, and we, we begin to digest it, and it's a habit to go, ah, this is aversion. This is impermanent, and I don't want to get involved in this. It's, it's the habit. It's being able to, that moment before we get drawn down the path of the habitual reaction, in that moment, the teaching can penetrate, and there's, there's a space to relate differently to experience. So he taught knowing the mind, and he taught insight, which, are, which in a way is, is the same thing, clear seeing of experience. So it's not enough just to say this is anger, but we have to be able to let go of the extra charge we have around what's afflictive. It needs to become, and, the, and these are the Buddha's words in my, in my interpretation, greed is like this. Anger is just like this. Confusion is just like this. A thought is just like this. A feeling is just like this. Meaning, we in our own experience know the texture of it with nothing extra. With nothing extra. The components of experience arise without like, without dislike without feeling ashamed that I'm irritated, without exaggerating the quality of the experience, without judging. So that's the first step in nothing extra, is it just arises and we recognize oh, this is universal experience. The Buddha called it a dhamma. A dhamma. This is a dhamma. This is a dharma. This is a truth. Here it is. This is an emotion. This is what it's like. I know this. I know this clearly. Not, I didn't experience it. Because in not experiencing it, there's no chance for insight into it. Not, I'm getting rid of it, but it arises and I know it clearly. I've developed the stability of mind to see it arise, recognize it, and, and, and with its quality, with nothing extra. And there's further. There's further. Not only nothing extra, but we could even see it as an expression of the true mind. We could even see it as just a blossom of space. We could even see it as useful energy. Anger, for example, is an excellent one. But the, but, but the, the rejection of it and the confusion about what it is has to be let go of so that we can get to its, its purity as just energy. 
So ongoing practice is, is getting smart on the nature of our inner life. I think that we sometimes can think that we're doing all this meditation to get into a particular state of mind. That would be the Buddhist state of mind. But the reason we're doing this meditation is so that we can be in a continual study of our inner world. We can get smart about the reality of it and just know what's happening more and more directly. So it's liberating to know our ingredients, to know our filters. And Dogen Zenji, the famous saying to study the Buddha way is to study the self. So he's talking about this dimension of things. If we only know how afflicted we are, if we only know our inner world and, and our emotions and don't know the clarity, then we don't quite have a refuge. So it's not, not just enough to do the practice and really f- and be clear of, okay, I have all these trigger points, I have all this reactivity, great. Somehow we have to find a refuge. And so the next step that the Buddha taught is recognize all of this phenomena is impermanent and then make a shift to where you rest in that which knows. That which knows the passing play of mental phenomena Make the shift to where that's your basis rather than the content of the mind. If our basis is the content of the mind, we're always ill at ease because it's shifting. It's not reliable. It's just the clouds. It's moving. But when we shift to that which knows the movement of mind, there's space. There's, there's a kind of freedom. So we call that in this tradition awareness. Awareness, that which is aware. Already it's functioning. If we, can, if we can see things arising, we're aware that thoughts come and go. Already it's functioning, but there's a further shift in which we unhook from the stream of mental content and begin to rest in that which knows. It's not a self. It's not a thing. It doesn't arise. It doesn't disappear. It's always available, that which knows. And right there is a deeper level of freedom. So it's part of what we're doing with uh, the baby Buddha, is celebrating this, this deeper freedom, the purity of our nature. There's an innocence available to us. There's an innocence of knowing from that place, which is just clear knowing, nothing added, without excess, without the constant impulse to correct or improve. The ability to let things slide without continually grabbing on to the past and ruminating and trying to repair and all of the stuff the mind does. Resting in that which knows there's the ability to take pleasure in the shape of the moment as is, like a child. So the baby Buddha, in the Mahayana tradition, it said the Buddha was born And she took seven steps, pointed to the sky and ground, and said, between heaven and earth, I alone am the world-honored one. That's a kind of koan. What is is meant by that? I alone am the world-honored one, between heaven and earth. 